0: Gosar is defiant, Leahy is decamping, and Beto is determined on the political junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. Vote for president, i like to you and think to me, I don't
1: care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for
2: Kennedy, and we'll come out on top.
1: Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge. Because they're the ones to lead
0: the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 379 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin.
3: By its adoption of House Resolution 789, the House has resolved that Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona be censured.
0: The House of Representatives, for only the 24th time in its history voted on Wednesday to censure one of its own, Arizona's Paul Gosar, for tweeting an animated video that depicted him killing Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Biden. The last time a member was censured, in 2010, was New York's Charles Rangel for orchestrating a slew of financial and tax schemes. Wrangell was a Democrat, but he was censured by a bipartisan vote of 333 to 79. The vote against Gosar was nothing like that, 223 to 207, with just two, count them, two Republicans voting in the affirmative. The two, to no one's surprise, were Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, two of the few Republicans in the House who have stood up to the Donald-Trump-inspired insurrection of January 6. For the most part, GOP House members defended Gosar, or, at the least, condemned the House for the action. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who will become Speaker should the GOP capture the House in next year's midterms, never condemned the video. Instead, he went to the floor to accuse Democrats of hypocrisy and for running a House that silences the minority party. It's an old definition of abuse of power. Rules for thee, but not for me. That's
2: exactly what's happening here today. The speaker is burning down the house on her way out the door.
0: And among Gosar's GOP defenders were the usual suspects, Ohio's Jim Jordan. What are they doing today? Censoring a member for a cartoon. You got to be kidding me. And Florida's Matt Gates. Today, we're critiquing Paul Gosar's
3: anime. Next week, we might be indicting the wily e. Coyote for, uh, unexpl- for an explosive ordinance against the Roadrunner. As for
0: Gosar, who was unrepentant, he saw himself in good company. If I must join Alexander Hamilton, the first person attempted to be censored by this house, so be it. It is done. For AOC, Her fury was directed less at Gosar and more on Kevin McCarthy.
3: In response to the Republican leader's remarks when he says that this action is unprecedented, what I believe is unprecedented is for a member of House leadership of either party to be unable to condemn incitement of violence against a member of this body. It is sad It is a sad day in which a member who leads a political party in the United States of America cannot bring themselves to say that issuing a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong, and instead decides to venture off into a tangent about gas prices and inflation, what is so hard What is so hard about saying that this is wrong? This is not about me. This is not about Representative Gosar. But this is about what we are willing to accept.
0: There is no shortage of Republicans who dismissed the Fuhrer over what Gosar did, saying it was only a cartoon. If we've learned anything from January 6th, it's that hate talk leading to violence is real. But there is also a tremendous increase of threats made against members of Congress. The latest includes death threats made to Republican lawmakers from Trump robots for their votes in favor of President Biden's infrastructure bill. The threats are made against the members, their families, their staff. This is what politics has become. Meanwhile, Vermont's Pat Leahy became the sixth senator and first Democrat to announce he won't be seeking re-election next year. We'll have more of that later in the show. But there are an increasing number of Democrats in the House who won't be running again in 2022. The latest on the list, Jackie Spear of California and G.K. Butterfield of North Carolina. Neither seat is thought to be in danger of switching parties, but it's a sign that many Democrats see the end of their majority with next year's elections. And with Biden's approval ratings at an all-time low, with inflation and COVID on the front pages every day, Democratic fear may not be unwarranted. Also, more and more candidates are throwing their hats in the ring for 22. Beto O'Rourke, coming off defeats for the Senate and the presidency, declared his candidacy for governor of Texas. He outlined his vision Tuesday on MSNBC.
1: It's also about getting past this moment where Greg Abbott has brought us
3: to such a small place. Uh, The the bounty placed on the heads of Texas women who want to make their own personal health care decisions. The permitless carry law that allows anyone to carry a firearm without a background check or any training whatsoever in Texas.
1: And these transgender bathroom bill bans or deciding which girls can play which sports in this state. we got to get past that small Mean vision of Texas and get back to the big things. We got to make sure that everyone can come together and allow this state to reveal its potential.
0: In a state that has moved decidedly to the right since his bid for the Senate three years ago, O'Rourke has a very uphill fight. In New York, the ascension to the governorship by Kathy Hochul, who was number two under Andrew Cuomo until Cuomo resigned in a scandal, made history. The first woman to hold the post. But that hasn't stopped Letitia James, the state attorney general, from announcing she will challenge Hochul in next year's Democratic primary. Also joining the race is Jermaine Williams, the elected public advocate of New York City. And that leads to this week's trivia question. Who is the last female governor who was defeated in the primary in her bid for a full term? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous Vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com.
3: my time in the line? Do you believe in
0: what you see? Patrick Leahy, the longest serving senator in Vermont history and the fourth longest in Senate history, announced on Monday that he would not seek a ninth term next year. I know I've been there for my state when I was needed most. I know I've taken our best ideas. I've helped them grow. I brought Vermont's voice to the United States Senate and Vermont's values around the world. So, yes, I'm proud to be Vermont's longest-serving senator. And while I will continue to serve Vermont, Marcel and I have reached the conclusion that it is time to put down the gavel. It is time to pass the torch to the next Vermonter who will carry on this work for our great state. It's
2: time to come home.
0: Vermont, once perhaps the most Republican state in the country, hasn't elected a Republican to the Senate in 21 years. Democrats are hoping that trend continues in 2022. Putting it all together is Bob Kinzel, the senior reporter at Vermont Public Radio and host of Vermont Edition. Bob, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Hey, Ken, it's great to be here. Thank you. And, you know, we usually have you on the program talking about Bernie Sanders, but but Leahy's announcement and the opening he creates has the potential of really shaking up Vermont politics.
2: It really does. And, you know, he's been in office for 47 years. We don't have openings at the U.S. Senate or our one congressional seat very often. So anybody, any political leader in the state of Vermont who has any aspirations about going to Washington has to wait until there's a vacancy, and then that's the time they've got to move. And this year we have a vacancy now in 2022 at the U.S. Senate. There's a good possibility that our one congressperson, Peter Welch, will decide to run for the Senate seat. That will open up his seat in the U.S. House, and there are many, many people who are interested in running for that seat as well.
0: Well, first of all, were you surprised by the announcement? I mean, he is, after all, 81 years old.
2: You know, I think I was a little bit surprised until I really started to think about it. As you mentioned, he's 81 years old. He's been in the Senate for 47 years. Vermont is going to be a Democratic state no matter what happens. So I don't think he was getting a lot of pressure from Chuck Schumer to say, hey, you got to run so we can hold on to that seat. The odds of the Republicans getting this Senate seat are very, very slim. And I think he just felt he's been there a long time. He's done what he wants to do. And so while I was a little surprised because I think he felt that he was getting a lot done for Vermont as chairman of the Appropriations Committee, we've done very well with something that he started, the small state grant. So, for instance, in the infrastructure bill that President Biden signed into law this week, Vermont is going to get $2.2 billion for highways and roads and broadband. That's a lot of money in Vermont. But when I actually kind of just thought about it and and looked at the details, uh, I wasn't all that surprised. I mean, I really thought it could go either way. And in listening to him, uh, because I talk to him probably once a week, and listening to him Uh, I I just had the sense this fall that he was getting a little tired of the process in Washington and maybe felt, hey, it's time for somebody else to carry the ball.
0: Well, you know, before we get to uh, next year's elections, let me me just go back again to 1974 when Leahy first ran. And I remember that campaign. I, I, I remember that not only was he not supposed to win that year, but... Vermont had never had a Democratic senator in its history. That's kind of remarkable to think of in this day and age. But that was the, that was the facts in 1974. And I think that if I went to Washington as a senator, I could be, I'd be a very strong advocate for Vermonters. My generation and the generation that we're going to affect the most, that is the next generation, those generations aren't adequately represented. A strong voice for Vermont. Elect Patrick Leahy to the United States Senate.
2: That's exactly right. You know, at that time, he had been uh, a local county state's attorney. Uh, people looked at that race. Our incumbent congressperson at the time, Richard Mallory, who was a Republican, decided to run for the U.S. Senate. I think a lot of Democrats thought there is no way were ever going to be able to beat Richard Mallory. Uh, He had been speaker of the House. He was a well-known political person in Vermont. His family was well-known. So you didn't have any top Democrats thinking, ah, this is the time I'm going to run for the U.S. Senate. But Pat Leahy saw an opening there, and he announced his candidacy very early. In fact, he did it in the very same room at the State House that he that, uh, he announced his retirement. And there really wasn't much competition in the democratic primary so we got a good ride there and then lo and behold it was a watergate year uh... and the democrats and republicans just didn't see that coming because richard mallory who was our republican member of the u-s house had been a supporter of nixon's and this really came back to bite him during the campaign and so for pat leahy to campaign on this idea hey, we've never elected a Democrat to the U.S. Senate. I'm a young guy. He was then 33 years old. It's time for a change. We need some new blood, some new leadership. We need to be able to trust our government after the whole Watergate scandal. And Vermont voters responded to that message.
0: That was, wow, that was 47 years ago. What would you say are some of the highlights of his career?
2: Well, you know, he's worked very hard for agriculture and uh, coming from a dairy state, was chairman of the Senate Agriculture Committee for a number of years, played a leading role in developing organic dairy standards and cheese standards that we now take for granted. I know he felt very strongly about that, um, he served as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee for a number of years. In fact, he held a vote on every member of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. Some, Most people on the court he supported, but not all. Uh, he really campaigned very hard for privacy rights. Uh, one thing I know he's very proud of is his work to ban landmines around the world. That really became an international issue for him. And I think nutrition programs, uh, part of his work on the Agriculture Committee was to expand the food stamp program as much as possible and to make it as easy as possible for folks to be eligible for those programs. And, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, we've really seen him be, be a Democratic spokesperson, very critical of Donald Trump, pretty critical of George Bush. Uh, And so he's been uh, a strong Vermont presence in the U.S. Senate for decades.
0: There was also a famous cussing incident on the Senate floor involving Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh,
2: That is correct. Uh, They had some words uh, uh, very... expletive deleted words uh, on the Senate floor. And uh, that's very unlike Senator Leahy. Senator Leahy generally comes across as a pretty mellow person. We don't see him get really mad or angry on many occasions. And so when he does, it really stands out and people take notice.
0: What was his relationship like with Bernie Sanders? I, I mean, I know that he endorsed Hillary Clinton in two thousand and sixteen over Sanders, but though he uh, though he backed him last year
2: that 's right I think you know as many Democrats in Vermont that you have sort of a uh, uh, an odd relationship with Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders through most of his career, had been very critical of both Republicans and Democrats. And, of
0: course, actually, I didn't realize this until this week when, when Leahy was first elected to the Senate. Bernie Sanders was in that race as a you know third-party candidate. He was
2: part of the Liberty Union Party, right. uh, an independent party in Vermont. That's right. Uh, I think he got about 1% of the vote, if my memory is correct. Uh, and so Sanders has, has sort of carved out his own place in Vermont political history. Uh, he was in the Liberty Union Party, which was really an anti-war party. Then he left that party to run as an independent to be mayor of Burlington, and has run as an independent ever since. And I think Pat Leahy saw that Bernie Sanders could move the Democratic Party towards the left. I mean, I think that will be Sanders' legacy, that uh, we've certainly seen that in his two presidential runs. So uh, I think Leahy just acknowledged that Sanders had a different political style. He was going to pound on the desk in the Senate. He was going to have a filibuster. Uh, He was going to yell and scream at people. That's not the way Pat Leahy operates. But, you know, who's to say which one is more effective?
0: Sanders is is eighty years old. He, he'll be eighty one when he becomes a state senior senator in twenty twenty three. That's a that's a that's a long time to wait to become senior senator.
2: It certainly is, and uh, you know it really points to the age of Vermont's congressional delegation because you've got Leahy and Sanders uh, in their eighties. Peter Welch, our congressman, I believe, is seventy five. Uh, and so it, it really points to a changing of a guard in Vermont, and Leahy is the first person uh, to sort of represent that change.
0: You mentioned Peter Welch, and is it fair to say that he would be the front runner should he decide to run?
2: Absolutely. It'd be, be no question whatsoever. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be a Democratic seat. Uh, I can't think of any Republican in the state of Vermont right now who could give a Democrat uh, a good race. The only person would be our governor, Phil Scott, who's been very critical of Donald Trump and generally the Republican leadership in Washington. Uh, At a press briefing yesterday, Scott said there is no way, and he underlined no way, that he's running for the U.S. Senate. He sees the whole D.C. political scene as being toxic, and he can't imagine being down there for a day or a week, and so he completely ruled himself out. And frankly, there really aren't any other strong Republicans who could run, who could give a Democrat uh, a good race. So I think Peter Welch would emerge as the certainly the front-runner in the Democratic primary, and whoever wins the Democratic primary would be the front-runner to win the seat.
0: You know, you mentioned what Phil Scott said. That's exactly, almost word for word, what your your next-door neighbor, Governor Chris Sununu, said, uh, I guess last week, when he said he wouldn't run for the Senate.
2: I, I was struck by the similarities of the two, and uh, both governors were asked by reporters, Well, if things are so bad down there, doesn't it mean that we have to elect someone like you to go down there and clean things up? Chris Sununu said, hey, it's not me. And Phil Scott said, it's somebody else's responsibility. I can't be the one to go down there and try to change things. I won't be successful. I'm going to stick being governor and and lead the state of Vermont.
0: Well, assuming that uh, Welch does run, that opens up his uh, House seat. And it's been noted that Vermont has never sent a woman to the House or Senate.
2: Isn't that amazing? I mean, if you think of Vermont as this progressive state, and we have never sent a woman to Washington. And uh, as you mentioned, if, if Welch does run, and I fully expect that he will run, he's just taking a couple of days to let the dust settle, and then he'll make an announcement probably at the end of this week or early next week. Uh, but if he does run, that opens up the U.S. House seat, and we've got uh, three or four very strong women who want to run for the U.S. House, our Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray, our President of the Senate, Becca Ballant, uh, Speaker of the House Jill Krowinski, uh a state senator, Keisha Rahm Hinsdale. Uh, and there may be other women that get into that race. And again, that's a race that whoever is the Democratic nominee is almost certain to be elected. So I think there's a very, very good chance that in 2022, Vermont will send its first woman to Washington. It's really amazing to think that that's the case.
0: We've talked about his record, but, but in, a, in a couple of words or a sentence or so, what do you, what do you think Pat Leahy is going to be most remembered by?
2: I think he's going to be remembered for a lot of his issues involving the Judiciary Committee. Uh, You know, he was very strong for personal rights and civil liberties. Uh, I think he's also going to be remembered as being a very decent person. Uh, You know, and, and that's a quality that might be missing in some members of Congress these days. He was always a person who was willing to listen. Now, he might not agree with you. But he always took the effort to talk to people, to meet with his adversaries, try to work out a compromise. He really wasn 't an ideologue in that sense, and I, I think that what the his best quality of working with others is something that is sorely missing in Congress these days.
0: you know I was listening to you on uh, Vermont Public Radio talking about. Leahy's retirement, and you had an extended conversation with him right after the announcement. He he didn't sound optimistic about the future of democracy at all.
2: I think he's very worried about the future of democracy, and uh, the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th is, is one reason why. Uh, I think he's just dumbfounded that an event like that could take place and where the Republican Party is headed. I think he's very disappointed in the National Republican Party, both in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, that they've taken on certain characteristics that uh, are qualities that seem to be espoused by former President Trump. Uh, And I think he's very concerned about the future of democracy. I mean, when we get to the point where we're going to argue over whether or not an election is legitimate, uh, then we find ourselves in pretty desperate straits. And I think he's worried about that.
0: I think with good reason. Bob Kinzel is a senior reporter at Vermont Public Radio and host of Vermont Edition. Bob, thanks so much for being on the show. It's always my pleasure, Ken.
3: It's been a long time. Now I'm coming back home. I've been away now. Oh, how I've been.
0: You've heard this before. The Democratic Party is moving too far to the left and the Republican Party too far to the right. We may quibble about whether or not the Democrats have moved as far leftward as Republicans have moved starboard, but the fact is, if you're a member of Congress and you resist the tug of ideology, you could well find yourself faced with a primary challenge from the extreme wings. And with all of this, along comes former Senator Joe Lieberman with a new book, The Centrist Solution how we made government work and can make it work again. Senator Liebman, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie.
1: Uh, Hey, Ken, thank you. Uh, Great to be back. And uh, you summarized our uh, national political condition too well. Uh, And uh, also the reason why I wrote the book, I hope it helps people in power now uh, well, I guess first I hope it gives the, the the average person, the citizen, some reason for hope that we can get back to making our work, our, our government work again. But also for people in government, whether it's Congress or the White House, it wasn't so so mysterious how it happened. We just uh, left, right, Democrat, Republican, came to the center, negotiated, compromised, trusted each other, and, uh, and got some good things done.
0: And those are the stories that I uh, I tell in this book? Well, you and I have a different... I, I think come away from this differently because I remain a, 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 a internally, uh, eternally a pessimist about what's going to happen, and you are the ultimate optimist. But, but I would say right off the bat that neither party seems especially interested in a centrist solution. Uh, Democrats are growing impatient with President Biden's slow-moving, I-can-work-with-Republicans approach that maybe may be going nowhere. And uh, Donald Trump is leading a movement that sees Republicans who voted for an infrastructure bill, for God's sakes, as traitors. Yeah. Centrism doesn't feel like a very popular point of view these days.
1: Well, to put it mildly, <clears throat> maybe a little bit too diplomatically, we're at a what might be called a dynamic moment in the uh, positioning of our two parties. Because what you said is absolutely right. There, are, There are tugs. Uh, to the edge, uh, to the margins in both parties. But there is a movement in the center, and uh, I guess to the, my most recent Exhibit A uh, uh, for optimism is that is the Bipartisan Infrastructure Reform Bill that uh, just uh, passed Congress and uh, uh, signed by President Biden, and it really did work its way up from the bottom in both houses, there happened to be people that a group uh, called No Labels, which I, which I chair, which works at restoring bipartisan two-party solutions to uh, Washington, helped to support these people and give them a kind of reason to come together. But uh, my, my goodness, it passed the Senate with 69 votes, including Mitch McConnell, who was held up for a while in the house by the progressives of the democratic party who as is their right were negotiating for uh, support on another bill but it ultimately passed and interestingly uh it 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 didn't it couldn't pass with the democratic votes cuz some of the members of the so-called squad voted against it so 13 republicans voted for it and put it well over the top so it can still happen and this is a a a, a good bill a big bill but just as as you said Uh, there are Republicans now who are attacking, challenging, and uh, actually threatening some of those 13 Republicans. All of those, all of those. Yeah. 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 And and what's their crime? They voted for an infrastructure bill, which in the old days we used to call public works, which nobody was against because everybody's uh, district or state got something that would be good for the uh, people back home. So, I, I mean, but it was seen uh, uh, by too many Republicans as an act of uh, apostasy of, of traitorism for those thirteen Republicans to do what they thought was was good for their um, their their district. So, I mean, that
0: didn't we used to talk about that there was no Democratic or Republican ways of, of fixing a pothole or building a bridge? It's supposed we to did. nothing about politics should fit into that.
1: You're you're right and incidentally that still happens to be true except in Washington or except in some parts of Washington. Uh this is really a good bill so it can happen but it happened with consequences which um so that gives me optimism but the reaction to those 13 unfortunately may sustain your pessimism. So we have to continue to work on you, Ken.
0: <laughs> well, let me. <laughs> well, let me start. Let me start chronologically in the begin and from the start when when you were first elected to the Senate in 1988, uh, you defeated a Republican incumbent Lowell Weicker with help from Republican centrists and even some yeah. conservatives like like Bill Buckley. But. Um, yeah. And then, you know, when George Bush, who was elected president that year, worked with Democrats to get the budget in order by raising taxes. So so for better or worse, we saw two sides working together. And I, so I guess my first question on this is what was the Senate like you know, back in the early days of your career in terms of comity or bipartisanship?
1: Well, there, you know, comedy is a great word, C-O-M-I-T-Y. There's a little C-O-M-E-D-Y. <laughs> yes, yes, but, yeah. you're known for but, that. Uh, but, but you know, comedy was civility. And with uh, President Bush of uh, 41, uh, George Mitchell was the uh, Democratic majority leader of the state of the U.S. Senate coming in. A very, Both very civil, uh, decent people treated each other that way. Mitchell opposed some of uh, Bush's uh, tax proposals budget, uh, but they finally worked it out. And um, uh, I had a chance that 1st few two-year period, 1990, to work on the Clean Air Act amendment, which was started by an agreement with between a uh, Republican president, Democratic majority leader of the Senate. Uh, that there was a problem, people were getting sick because of dirty air, and our lakes and forests were forests were being destroyed. So, I mean, we took a lot of negotiating with interest groups, with other senators from different regions. But it it happened. So, um, there there was at the beginning a much more uh, mutual respect among both parties. There was different. There were differences. Uh, for instance, in the in the reaction to the original Gulf War, 1991, uh, when we uh, went to war to get Saddam Hussein and Iraq out of Kuwait, uh, the vote on the r- resolution to authorize the war was uh, partisan. I thought more partisan than it should be, but ten of us Democrats voted to give President Bush that authority. Uh, that was that was what he needed to get uh, 52 votes to 47 against. And uh, of course, that was a spectacular success. It lasted 100 hours, and then we achieved uh, our victory, and the Iraqis uh, w- retreated from Kuwait. So there was partisanship, but there was much more mutuality and respect between the both parties.
0: Well, people will argue that that 1991 war was the so-called good war, whereas the 2002 resolution, 2003 war was the bad war. We'll get to that in a second. Then let me go, you know, look, it's easy to call for bipartisanship when you've been in the majority for 40 years, as the Democrats were in 1994. And and Republicans, even Republican moderates, said, well, yeah, that's fine and dandy, but, you know, such a path did nothing but keep the Democrats in power. And I think that's why so many of them embraced Newt Gingrich and other bomb throwers because they they were the only people who would bring the Republican Party out of the wasteland. So, in other words, you could understand why Republicans turned to Gingrich and other bomb throwers because the status quo was intolerable for them.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good, that's actually a, in a way, a, a kind of a, a spin way to say it. But you know, there's a lot of truth to it, and uh, one of the remarkable stories that follows that, of course, which I tell uh, in the in the book, uh, is that uh, shockingly, the leader of that uh, angry revolution that uh, where Republicans took over the House for the first time in decades, Newt Gingrich somehow ended up developing enough of a trusting uh, m- mutual relationship with Bill Clinton that they actually got got a lot done together uh, and never would have guessed it would happen. I mean, after the election day in 1994, I think people thought there'd be civil war in the Congress, a little bit like what we have now, unfortunately. But both of them were uh, policy wonks, both Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich, and they both had a desire, or let's call it a, a, a political imperative, to to prove that they could get something done, each to their own vision of what their constituency was, and so and they knew they'd have to cooperate to get it done, and so they did: welfare reform, criminal justice reform, and to me, the biggest, uh, most effective of all, the Balanced Budget Act of 1997 which actually balanced the budget, hard to remember. But the last three years of Bill Clinton's administration, the federal government ran a surplus. So, I mean, it, it shows you what can happen if, for various reasons, the leaders particularly want to make it
0: happen. But don't forget that when Bill Clinton ran for reelection in '96. He ran not only on his record, but he ran against Gingrich and the contract with America and a Congress that had gone too far to the right. Remember, Gingrich was instrumental in that shutdown. So, so yeah. y- yes, they worked together. But I think one of the reasons Clinton, who looked so dead in the water in 1994, right. was reelected because he had a perfect foil in Newt Gingrich.
1: In, in part, that's true. It's, I mean, and it's a tribute uh, really, to I guess Gingrich, that notwithstanding that, when they both ended up on their feet, uh, in January of 1997, well, they started to work together on the Balanced Budget Act again for their own reasons and motivations, but but they did it, and uh, uh it was it was really a thrill to be a uh, part of that. So I tell that story in, in the book, The Centrist uh, Solution, because I think it proves even when. People of very different ideologies uh, hold the key uh, positions of power in Washington, President, Speaker of the House. Uh, If they're willing to come to the center, and I don't mean become moderates, I mean come to the center to negotiate with people with different points of view, compromise, uh, trust them enough to to make an agreement, and uh, get something done. You never get 100% of what you want, but if you insist on 100%, as happened so often today, you'll end up with zero percent. And who suffers? The country suffers. Your constituents suffer.
0: Do you think that uh, your, reputa- your reputation for, you know, uh, tr- trying to work for a bipartisan solutions, do you think that was a major part of why Al Gore asked you to be his running mate in 2000?
1: I do. I'm, I must say, except for his kind words, when he Uh, introduced me as his running mate in Nashville in August of 2000. We, We never really talked a lot about why he chose me, but that was clearly one of the things he stressed. I cannot express with words the gratitude that I feel in my heart today as the first Jewish American to be honored to be a major party candidate for the vice presidency. Al Gore, um, you know, had been obviously he was Bill Clinton's vice president, but uh, he had been uh, come out of the so-called New Democratic movement of that time. The Democratic Leadership Council, Clinton had been chairman of it. So, uh, in fact, when when Clinton chose Gore in uh, 1992 as his running mate, a lot of people said, gee, they're just why why didn't he balance the ticket? Not only did he choose somebody else from the South, but another Centrist Democrat, you know
0: that a Bill Clinton clone, yeah, (laughs)
1: right. But that's what Clinton was sort of doubling down, and in his own way, I think uh, Al Gore was doubling down too. And we were one, we were two of the ten who voted for the uh, 1991 Gulf War resolution. The good good uh, war, the good war, and he stressed that in 1992 when he was running. And he also brought it up again when he uh, announced that I was going to be uh, his not, his uh, running mate. So, uh, yeah, I think that was uh, definitely part of it. Look, part of it was that we just had become really good friends and we trusted each other, and, uh, which is a, a factor too. But uh, but ultimately, you, you, a presidential candidate wants to choose somebody who could do the most important thing, help him get elected,
0: you know. Now, here's my, uh, here's my attempt at pop psychology, and I've told you this once before, that another reason he picked you, possibly, was the fact that you stood up and, and bitterly condemned Bill Clinton for his personal behavior, one of the few Democrats to do so, and the fact that you were close with Bill Clinton, and maybe Al Gore was trying to separate himself from Clinton and the scandals, and he picked Joe Liebman. How's that for pop psychology?
1: No, I, I think there, you, may be, uh, you may qualify for a degree as a psychologist. Basically. <laughs> or, no, need, no, no. Or, or
0: need to see one, right.
1: No, no, uh-huh. I, I actually think there's, um, again, it may sound strange, but I we never really talked about it, but it was a pretty uh, well uh, uh, felt, including by people who were close to Vice President Gore as he made his decision, that that was on his mind because he was, he was really shaken by the whole Clinton-Lewinsky Scandal I mean um, both just uh, uh, in, in terms of what had happened uh he was embarrassed and upset that the president had done that but but um, also of course he he felt it would be a shadow over what was clearly going to be his candidacy for uh, president in uh, two thousand i mean I'll, I'll tell you a remarkable story, which I guess I do write about in the book that on the on the day on the Monday morning that it was leaked. That, uh, that Al Gore was going to choose me as his running mate um, um, uh, and they were going to announce it Tuesday morning in Nashville so I'm still home in New Haven, Connecticut, and the phone rings it's President Clinton, and uh, we, we had been friends for a long time, and he said, "Yeah, I'm so excited, you know as as better than anybody about what uh, I'm all about, what my policies, what Al Gore's are, so you're perfect running mate. I think that was the whole idea of the moderate New Democrat. But then he said to me, as only Clinton would, almost as if he was talking about someone else, but he obviously wasn't, he said, and the other great thing about Al choosing you is that because of that speech you made about my personal behavior, he can forget about it now and run on our record. The Clinton... The
0: issue is now off the table.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it was fascinating. So in a way, ironically, uh, Bill Clinton spoke to me more in detail uh, about the question or the, the, uh, of pop psychology uh, that you offered <laughs> than Al Gore ever did. But uh, he was, I think he was right.
0: You know, you write also in the book about how the country came together in the aftermath of 9-11. The recent death of Max Cleland reminds me of that horrible ad. Republicans ran against him in 2002, questioning his patriotism. How much did, how much do you think 9-11 changed the fabric of politics in this country?
1: Well, it did for a while. It really did. But, but that terrible story, um, about Max Cleland, which I really castigate in the book, uh, it shows that it wasn't perfect. In other words, In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the the Governmental Affairs Committee that Fred Thompson of Tennessee and I uh, led at that time took back up a proposal we we had been dealing with, believe it or not, to set up a new Homeland Security Agency. And and we worked it all through in a really bipartisan way in the aftermath of 9-11. And then at sort of the last minute on the floor the Republicans raised this objection to the fact that we are allowing in the law and the proposal uh, employees of the new department to unionize us in the limited way federal employees can unionize collective us. bargaining, well, right. They, they made it a big deal. And, of course, uh, a lot of these employees from uh, different divisions who, who were law enforcers had already been unionized and it never was a problem. And, you know, they started and they ran this awful ad against Max Cleveland in Georgia and Gene Carnahan in uh, uh, in Missouri that uh, that they had put the interest of the union bosses ahead of security. It was really grotesque and gross.
0: Think of what Max sacrificed in in, in Vietnam, for example.
1: Oh, Particularly uh, painful and really just uh, uh, wrong for him. And then of course they lost. Max Cleland and Gene Carnahan lost. I can't say whether well, that was a reason, but it. Was one of the reasons probably we went back uh, into session after the election in uh, the, uh, 2002 that was, and we rapidly adopted a compromise which we had tried to adopt on that on that uh, collective bargaining question. We we enacted the bill and President Bush signed it at a big ceremony in December of 2002, and then we went on to the 9/11 Commission and reforming the intelligence community uh, apparatus of our government. And that really was uh, nonpartisan, although even with that, we had to get over uh, what I described in the book, not as partisanship, but as a fear of partisanship in the Bush White House, which had been told by Denny Hastert and Tom DeLay, their leaders in the house, watch out for this commission that McCain and Lieberman are proposing. Those Mr. radicals. President. It's all, right. It was radical. It's all aimed at blaming nine 11 on you. George Bush, which of course was the, exactly the opposite of why we were doing it, because we saw Congress beginning to take off on partisan investigations and and the White House beginning its own investigations, were, which looked awfully self defensive to us. And of course, the nine eleven Commission, led by Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton, turned out to be a wonderfully non partisan Commission, which made a great report, which we which Congress adopted in a in a non partisan
0: way. So then, okay. So then came your campaign for re-election in two thousand six, and you write in the book that the Democratic Party was moving well to the left, and and you were sticking by your guns on supporting the war in Iraq. Now, you also wrote, and this was this I, this was interesting, that the reception you were getting by some voters were was was different than you ever got before. There was a lot of anger about the war; it yeah. was directed at you. That that had to be a different campaign for you than ever before.
1: Very different canon, very difficult. In other words, so um, you know, as you know, most Democrats in the Senate supported the resolution to authorize President Bush to go to war uh, against Saddam Hussein uh, after he was overthrown. Things went bad, and I and of course I said they had gone bad too, but the difference was I simply was not ready to to, to support a withdrawal from Iraq until we had stabilized the country and. I just worried about what a message would send to the world that America no longer that uh, was credible and didn't stick with the battle until until it was over, or at least uh, at least it wasn't a retreat in defeat. Uh, and defeat. And but my record was pretty much the same as it had been on everything else. So it was really uh, different, particularly among uh, Democrats and and uh, uh, liberal or democratic organizations. I mean, I describe a. a, a a moment that year where uh was the machinist union represented the workers of pratt and whitney who made jet engines that supported them very successfully over the years and the head of the union called me up and said uh we can't support you this year i said why not what happened he said well our international union is against the war in iraq they want us out and they told us we can't support you so that hurt of course the irony of a company, of guys making military equipment, having their union tell them not to support somebody because he wanted to try to finish a war in some respectable way. But it was hard. And uh, I'll never forget that state convention, a Democratic convention. Well, I got the nomination, but my opponent, oh, I forgot, got 25%, maybe maybe a third of the vote. And just people who had been my longtime friends who worked with and who I agreed with on everything, but that one issue just avoided me, or or were out there uh, chanting uh, negative comments at me. So, but in the end, you know, thank God and thank the people of Connecticut, I was able in Connecticut to run as an independent, and uh, I won uh, with support from uh, really three parties, uh, uh, which is to say Republican, Democrat, and Independent. So uh, I have a lot to be grateful for. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have chosen that as the way to get re-elected, but but there was something in it really that um, that was sort of validating ultimately if you give the people a chance. Uh,
0: In an ad I'm going to play now, um, you say that while you understand that many Democrats disagree with your position on the war, they shouldn't forget all the things you fought for in your career that they do support.
1: I already know that some of you feel passionately against my position on Iraq. I respect your views. And while we probably won't change each other's minds, I hope we can still have a dialogue and find common ground on all the issues where we do agree. Like keeping good jobs in Connecticut, cleaning up Long Island Sound, helping our children afford college, making America energy independent, and protecting a woman's right to choose. There's a lot at stake for the future and still so much work to do. I'm Joe Lieberman, and I approve this message because it's a great privilege to serve you in the Senate—one that I will
0: always work hard to earn. You mentioned something earlier, though, that, that stuck with me. You said that you you didn't want to end your support for the Iraq War until it was seen, you know, to its conclusion. But that's what a lot of people were saying when when Joe Biden ended our involvement in Afghanistan. That look, you know, this is not go on forever, and Iraq could have gone on forever. So. You could, uh, I you know, in other words, you can see yeah a part yeah. yeah okay you could see the passion mm-hmm. against the war. No,
1: I I, I get it. So um, so it was a little bit a little bit different because there really was still a war going on in Iraq uh, at that point, and um, I just thought that if we up and left, wow, uh, it, it, not only would there be devastation, including to our allies there in Iraq, but uh, we would look terrible. It looked like we just Ran and uh, that would affect our credibility all over the world. Yeah, it would embolden but, our enemies, and so.
0: But here's the. Di- That's what General Milley said about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and yet.
1: Yeah, you but had here's to get the out. difference, and here's the difference. In my opinion, and I opposed the withdrawal from, uh, from Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan really had ended, uh, and uh, uh, what we were we had 2,500 troops there. We hadn't lost a soldier in a year and a half. And uh, it was a counterterrorism effort, uh, really, for the whole region. And uh, we were given a kind of moral support uh, to the Afghan military. And the, the promise of close air support, which is a bit different, but the 2,500 people were different.
0: Okay, here comes my pessimism against your optimism again. All right. You, you call for center solutions and and I don't know if you're arguing that the two parties need to return to the center, because to me, the thought of Republicans coming close to the center is far from that, and some Democrats yeah. as well. But, and, or are you calling for a third party or third way, which if you look at our yeah. history, the past, it's yeah. not about to happen either.
1: Okay, good question. So maybe I can clarify. Again, I, I want to say that to me, uh, to be a centrist is not the same thing as being a moderate. Uh, being a centrist means whether you're left or right or center, Democrat, Republican or independent, you are willing to come to the center uh, to negotiate, to, to talk, to uh, compromise, to get something done. and, I, and To give I, up something I, I, to get something. To give up something to get something, which is the way it's happened all the way back to the Constitutional Convention of Philadelphia. So I cite uh, one Democrat, liberal Democrat, Ted Kennedy, a conservative Republican, John McCain, but I could have cited Orrin Hatch or somebody like that. And and they all, Teddy Kennedy was probably your uh, arch-liberal uh, Democrat. But honestly, he was a an impressive centrist when he wanted to be, which is to say when he wanted to get something big done. So whether it was children's health insurance uh, or uh, education reform, he he would sit down with the ranking Republican on his committee, or with the president of the other party, and say, "Okay." And he had the Kennedy method. I used to tease him about it. Divided in three, uh, the first third uh, of the issues is we agree on, so let's put them in the bill. Uh, the other third we're never going to agree on, so get them out. Put them. Save it for another day. And there's that middle third. Of we, if we let's negotiate. And, and if we can reach compromise agreements, we'll put them in the bill. And by doing that, as a, which to me is the definition of centrism, Teddy Kennedy got some enormously important things done uh, for our country. And that's the model for me of what, what we have to get back to. The Congress and President Biden just did it on a bipartisan infrastructure bill, so so they can do it again. But honestly, it is a fight, and and that's and ultimately— the answer to that is the voters. The voters got to say when they go to vote, I'm only going to vote for somebody who's willing to go to the center and get things done. Isn't Ellie Ken? That's what they say on polling. One of the more interesting questions that pops up occasionally is that people are asked, do you want your elected member of Congress to do exactly what they promised they would do in the last campaign or do you want them to compromise? To get something done, and the second choice, compromise, to get something done, always gets sixty to seventy percent. So that's where the where the people are, and uh, for a lot of internal reasons uh, that are not acceptable, uh, that's not where too many members of Congress. That's the are. whole point.
0: That's the whole point. I mean, I mean, you know, the Republican Party once upon a time there were smart people with smart ideas but now and they would oppose the kind of stuff that Trump uh, was offering and now they're in this Absolutely. corner 100%. They're they're questioning the legitimacy of elections. They you know, have you is this is this a party that could warm up to your book? I mean, I don't see it.
1: No, those those people unless they're being totally dishonest, which I'm afraid some of them are, just to uh, self-protect uh because they see the numbers how, how popular Trump is among registered Republicans. But honestly, I give a lot of credit to people like Glenn Cheney. Liz Cheney. Liz, yeah, Liz Cheney. Sorry. And, uh, oh, Governor Larry Hogan, Republican governor of Maryland.
0: Whose term limited and will be out of a job next year. And Liz Cheney could very well lose her primary. And Adam Kinzinger is being redistricted out of Congress. And Anthony Gonzalez is not running. So all the people who stood up to insanity seem to be leaving or could be leaving i mean and then you have the democrats you have joe biden is talking about bipartisanship and his ability to reach across party lines and democrats say well that's not the way we want to do it um and and, and meanwhile his numbers are lower than ever and then and then wait wait wait, i'm still wait i'm still on a rant i'm still on a rant and then (laughs) and then you get interviewed by newt gingrich to talk about your book. And he says, you know, we love Joe Liebman because he's fighting for solutions. Is there any indication that Newt Gingrich is interested in bringing the two parties together and making government work? Forget about
1: 1995. Yeah. But right now he's... Well, I tell you what... Wait, wait, wait. Let
0: me me just calm down for a second, okay? Okay, okay.
1: okay. (laughs) I good. Take a... You know, have a drink of water. (laughs) I (laughs) was going to say something stronger, but, you know who knows who's listening but uh <laughs> I'm No, I would say based on our conversation his interview with me about the book I think Newt uh can do that but let's see over time but honestly uh, uh the people first of it starts with leadership and I think some of the democrats on the further left not that Joe Biden in my working with him 24 years a center left democrat yeah. uh uh willing to be bipartisan Got pulled over to the left, and I understand why. But but honestly, it's not where most of the country is, and and uh, I hope that Democrats don't have to be really drubbed in 2022 to realize that. And then 20. Uh, so yes, I my hope, because the the two parties have such a hold on the the American political psyche, even though now I think it's withering. Uh, my hope is that there'll be internal reform in both parties in the centrist, as they did on the uh, infrastructure bill, will will dominate. But if not, honestly, there's a way in which the system corrects it. So and we will come to another 1860 moment. I don't think we can bring Lincoln back, but hopefully there will be some leader. And incidentally, that was that back Lincoln- when
0: you were attorney general of Connecticut, right?
1: <laughs> right. You know, that's the kind of line I miss McCain. That's the kind of line he would have said. Oh, yeah, you were just arriving in the Senate when Lincoln got elected. And so, But incidentally, as you know, I'm sure, Lincoln, Republican, had a Democratic running mate, Andrew Johnson. And he did it to try to uni- unite the country
0: as, as the Civil War was coming on. Joe Lieberman is a former four-term senator from Connecticut. He was the Democratic nominee for vice president in 2000 and was himself briefly a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2004. He's the author of a new book, The Center Solution, How We Made Government Work and Can Make It Work Again. Senator Lieberman, thank you so much for being on the program.
1: It's been great to talk to you. It's a lot of fun, and you're you're obviously really tuned in, and uh, I, I have to set it as a new mission of mine. To uh, diminish your uh, pessimism and renew your optimism about America's political future.
0: Senator, thank you so much for being on the program. My
1: pleasure All of us take care.
2: But now old friends are acting strange. They shake their heads. They say I've changed but well, something lost but something's gained.
0: That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at the political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. I'll see you soon.